Today on the Tech on Tap podcast, we discuss how to get the most out of your storage offerings via storage service design and adaptive QoS with NetApp IT. We also find out what the main cause of performance issues in storage is. NetApp IT, we make storage fun. Welcome to the Tech on Tap podcast with Justin Parisi, Glenn Sizemore, and Sully the Monster. I love NetApp. Hello and welcome to the Tech on Tap podcast. I am Justin Parisi and sitting very, very closely to me is... Mr. Andrew Sullivan, who uh, I'm just getting over the winter crud today, so apologies to everybody if I don't talk as much as I normally do. So Glenn's giving me this look right now, like, well, you, yeah. you hardly ever talk. What are you talking about? Well, A, like, that's the reason you don't talk, and B, the real reason you're not going to talk is we have got a full room today. It's a full house. Like, we, who's, who's going to be Uncle Jesse? Uh, I nominate you. Okay. Yeah, yeah, you, you're definitely Uncle Jesse. Can he be the twins? A- he Andrew? Andrew, yes, yeah. yes, Andrew is totally the twins, okay. both of them. Yeah, Excellent. absolutely. So since we have a full house, we're going to go around the room and introduce everybody like we did in grade school. We'll start over here with the man sitting next to Glenn Sizemore. Let's go ahead and start with him. Yeah, absolutely. So sitting next to me is the the amazing Edward, Eduardo Rivera. Sorry for scrambling your name there, buddy. Uh, who is the lead storage architect for Customer One here inside NetApp. Eduardo, how are you doing, man? I'm doing good today. How are you guys doing? I'm pretty good. So, Eduardo, tell us a little bit about what you do. All right. So I work within the Customer One organization with NetApp IT. And my, my role as a storage architect is really to, I guess, help the organization figure out what we're doing with storage. You know, figure out what, what is the direction, what are we putting on the floor, what are, what are the things that, that we're co- coordinating towards as a, you know, IT organization to serve our applications and really with a, with a focus on using NetApp, NetApp technology. Excellent, excellent. So tell us a little bit about, uh, it's Customer One, right? So yeah. tell us a little bit about Customer One and what they do. So customer one, I think you can you can split NetApp IT into what we call customer zero and customer one. Zero being the the, the organization that supports all the product development, so everybody, all the developers that do on tap and out and all that kind of stuff. And customer one is more your traditional enterprise IT. So we support things like auto support, quota, GBI, ERP, all those back office, right? SharePoint, um, and obviously like every enterprise organization, we have storage, we have servers, and we have all that kind of stuff. So. That's what customer one does, and within that, I, I manage the you know division for storage. Excellent, excellent. So we're using our own stuff and making sure that it's all nice and new and fun for all of our customers and, and partners and that sort of thing, right? Yeah. So to I guess I'll say um, I guess we have a unique position, right? Where we have a a need to support our, our IT infrastructure and deploy the technology needed to support that. And at the same time, we also want to consume our own technology and provide feedback for product operations. And we also serve as a reference to customers, right? So when they, when that customer wants to deploy a particular technology and may have some questions, we can talk about what we have done and what we have encountered and how we fix it. So, so serve a dual role there, right? You know, serve the business, but also serve as a, as a reference and be able to consume our technology and provide feedback. So around the room here, we'll go ahead and go to the next guy who's actually been on the podcast before. It's Stetson Webster. Stetson, please introduce yourself. Tell us what you do. Sure. I'm glad to be on the show, guys. My name is Stetson Webster. Um, I'm a storage architect in NetApp IT. I work with Eduardo. Um, my concentration in my work with Eduardo is actually more so on the tools 
and 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 the infrastructure of the around the tools. So I also work with um, Customer Zero for um, helping them with a reference point for the development of the tools, and and making sure that it's vetted within the business, within the infrastructure that Eduardo has um, so graciously provided for us to do just that. Excellent, excellent. So sitting next to Stetson is Evan Miller. Glad to be here. Thank you very much. Evan Miller, what do you do? And tell us what, what you're working on these days. I lead a group of uh, storage uh, service design architects. We're a pre-sales consulting group uh, that works with the SE community and the sales force. And we're uh, completely customer-facing to help them walk through how do they transition uh, storage to a true service platform model. Which brings us to our topic today. Uh, and, and, and that's... We, Stetson hooked us up. Uh, he happened to know that Evan was going to be in town uh, and, and went ahead and, and, and made sure we got this on the schedule. Evan, your team has been doing some incredible stuff uh, in, in real-world accounts all over the world for the past two years, uh, and, and including some of one of our very own, uh, NetApp IT. You, know, you came in and, and did the assessment. So we'd like to pull that apart today, uh, talk about what the service design team does, some of the offerings that, 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 that you have, uh, and then specifically touch on and, and, and let, just the three of us are going to get out of the way and let the three of you talk uh, and, and just talk about what that was like inside NetApp, you know, when, when you did the internal assessment and, and what some of the outcomes of that will be. Sound like a plan? Sure. Cool. So let's, let's go ahead and kick it off. Uh, let's uh, dive into a little bit of the service delivery offerings that, mm -hmm. that you... So yeah. maybe, maybe I can start off with... Yeah. Here's how this whole thing began, right? This is very organic, grassroots. Nobody, you know, made some grand strategy years ago to go build this. This has uh, blossomed as something that a larger and larger number of people are embracing. And uh, so I want to give you some of that background and that history because the history is pretty fascinating of how this came about and how we got to the point of working with NetApp IT and now over 60 customers. Okay, fantastic. So pull that apart. Let's go. Yeah, you bet. So I came to NetApp about almost five years ago, uh, January of 2011, and um, immediately was assigned to help service providers to design the offerings that they're going to face their market with to be profitable and grow revenue and be competitive and all of those things. And the first thing we saw was that they were, they were approaching this task as if it had never been done before, right, as if storage had never been designed for any customer. And so um, as we began helping them, this process would take months sometimes to get all the right people in that service provider together, the product management, the architecture, the operations, get them all to go, going together in the same direction. We compress that from what used to take months down to a single day. And, and over the period of the last few years then, we've seen not only service providers take this up, but now enterprises that want to behave like service providers. The cloud has been so disruptive to CIOs and, and VPs of IT that they're now being forced to figure out how do I run with the efficiency and the agility and the performance and the cost of a cloud platform. And so uh, this has now been delivered to over 60 customers. And we came to NetApp IT. Actually, they, they heard about it and said, hey, we'd like to do that about uh, a year ago. And uh, actually, it was September, I think, of 2015. 2014. Oh, sorry, 14. Sorry, we are 15. And, um, and it was really, really exciting. In fact, they were very helpful in helping us to actually crisp it down a little bit more and get better at it. So right about at about that time, um, I was tasked in NetApp IT with coming up with the initial constructs for a service catalog. 
Um, it, it, it was a very daunting task, and I had come up with a design that I was very proud of. Um, I, I knew it wasn't complete. Um, I knew that it was entirely based on, on, on hardware, and it, it had no way, I had no way of enforcing the design. Um, I just came up with the design. I knew what the top end is for everything and with an assumption that everyone would behave accordingly. But I wasn't sure what it is I was missing, but I knew I was missing something. And it was at about that time after doing a, a, a few presentations of this seemingly brilliant design that um, someone said, you might want to talk to an Evan Miller. Have you seen what he's doing? And so I reached out to Evan and I looked at a, um, a brain shark video that he had, an internal video, and lo and behold, I learned that that's what I was missing, which was an enforcement model for what I had designed in the hardware. And, and I very quickly um, embraced it, and I um, made the recommendations. I rounded up the troops, and we arranged for a service design workshop in NetApp IT. Now, I, I thought that Evan was totally out of his mind to, <laughs> to, to take this whole design. Because I looked at the deliverables of what he was going to do in the workshop, and I said, there's just no way he can do this in two days. And, and I, I, I seem to remember that I even asked him at least twice leading up to it, um, dude, do you think two days is enough for this? It'll be fine. Don't worry. I was like, no, this, what you're delivering here is at least six weeks of hardcore work. You know, and he just kept reassuring me. But I had my doubts um, all the way into, you know, the um, ha going getting getting through half of the first day. Then it became apparent to me that we were, in fact, going to be able to pull this off. And, and if I may, may interject, so so I really came into the picture at NetApp IT in really in May of this year. So this happened before I got here. Before I was in NetApp IT, I was an SE on the field in Texas, where you know. Evan and, uh, and Alan are from. And uh, I work with Evan in a couple of accounts doing the, um, doing the assessment, and I've seen what they've done in the past. Now, as I walk into this environment that we have here today, I saw the homework, they did all the homework, they created all the, the plan, and the, I'm sure we'll talk more about what that plan is, but it's really a business model. It starts with a business model that develops into a, this is the foundation you need to buy, and this is how you slice it up to provide a particular uh, service. So I came into this, and uh, and what I've done since being, being here, we actually put the plan into action. So we all the the homework, all the uh, I guess uh, the theory had been done, and and by putting into action, what it means we we actually are building filers to spec to meet that uh, that th those requirements. We're trying to leverage QoS, which I'm sure I would like to talk more about to to manage service levels, and and it's it's a process, right? Like every other enterprise organization that I I've been a part of. You know, to be honest, we have a lot of waste. We have a lot of big sprawl, and we have uh, uh, problems controlling how we're dividing uh, storage resources. And there's always budgets, and there's applications, and blah blah. But um, but this really gives us sort of like a, a roadmap to bring that in and to be more efficient on how we divide our storage and how we how we handle it. So let's take a step back for a moment, right? And you know, the service design workshop that you guys put in place, right? What was what was the goal here, or what was the problem that you were addressing by taking this action, by going forward, and you know, I, I guess what's what's the definition of service design, or what what services were you defining? Yeah, what is that thing? Yeah, let's start with what are the barriers to really running like a service provider? Okay, 
The, the first one is the complete lack of a service definition. A disk drive is not a service. It's just an asset. It's hardware, right? Uh, the second thing is the lack of a metric, right? If you have no metrics to to put into that service definition and therefore no metrics to measure, how do you know if you're delivering any value at all, right? And 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 the the big outcome or the or the negative outcome of this gap is I have very unpredictable performance and very unpredictable business model. I don't know really how much my storage costs to deliver to anybody, and I don't know whether or not it's going to meet any kind of SLA at all. I, I want to interject one key point that Evan just 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 mentioned there is you don't know if you're delivering it or not. So I want to show you or illustrate how that manifests. In, a, in an IT shop when you have an application owner that is adamant that the database is slow and it's because of storage. The storage guy cannot even get on a call and defend that. You, you're already guilty and you can, you, now you have no way of defending that. It's the same thing when you call into NetApp support. Um, the, the person on the other end of the line does not would not have a metric to defend. Well, they they, they would in a perf stat, but 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 really where it really counts is what yeah. the application is demanding. Yeah, we could we we can dig through a perf stat and look at a customer environment and prove no man, we're, we're fine coming off the array. You got an issue somewhere else up the stack, and we'll help you find that problem. Uh, but but it's not a storage issue. But but to your point, Evan, or sorry, to your point, Stetson. Uh, at the end of the day, the only thing that matters is, is the application behaving the way that the business expects it to? Yes or no? If it's not, everyone failed. And it doesn't matter whose fault it is. Yeah. Everyone failed. If business. it is, everyone's doing their job. Right. right? And the problem he's pointing out is, what is the definition of good or fine? Did anybody agree on it? What does the application need, right? If there's no benchmark or metric, then everybody argues about what good is, and nobody succeeds. Right. And I'll jump uh, right in here to... To answer the question earlier about how do we define the services, we define it at the end of the day based on a, a business model that, that that delivers a price per gig. To Evan's point, like you need to know how much it costs in you, and it's price per gig based on a, a price that you're paying, uh, and it's also defined by some capacity and some IOPS. And uh, I'll let Evan and, and uh, Setson elaborate, but we are uh, we're talking these days a lot about IOPS per terabyte, meaning that we not only can measure you know how many how much capacity I give you, but how much performance that capacity is going to deliver. And then we use things like QoS to control the IOS per terabyte uh, metric. So it's a combination of those things that actually builds the service levels. And you start from the business side. You want to have X number of IOS per terabyte at this particular price and this particular size. And, and then you work your way back from there. So let me run through the typical customer experience, right? So we begin the workshop. Please do. Yeah. <laughs> by, by looking at what is their IO density. IO density is a really powerful, simple idea. And it is, what is the density of IO going to any given amount of capacity? And OCI is a fantastic tool for gathering this. Makes it very easy, produces great detailed reports, and then you can cut it any way you want. And IO density then allows us to do bar charts and pie charts by cluster, by data center, and look at what is that range of IO density. And now we can classify that and start seeing what are applications actually consuming. In most organizations that we go into, they have never studied this before. They, they know their amount of SATA, SAS, SSD, but they've never actually looked from the application down into the controller. What is the application asking for? What is the storage giving back? And that's revolutionary. Yeah, that's the thing that really caught my eye when I first learned about your program and, and what, what you and your team uh, were doing was that it was a data-driven model that, that was 
grounded in facts, in science. It wasn't I feels or my experience tells me that it's probabilities. It was we've gathered the data. We definitively know what your environment is. And these are the modifications that we think you need to make to, to more properly align your business model. Yep. The, the way I word that is we look at what the applications are already doing today when left at their own accord without any QoS. What do they naturally do when left alone? Yep. And it surprises everybody because they'll find, for example, that I've got a lot of high-performance storage, but the data is going really slow because the application isn't asking for much. Or we'll find the reverse. We've got SATA drives. Applications are pounding the hell out of the SATA trying to get more performance, right? So there's just complete misalignment happening in most environments. And so the, the first thing we discover is the, how, they, how much cost they can drop out of the environment and where they need to invest to improve performance because there's latency issues or something. Um, then the second thing it tells us that drives us into the workshop is what is the range of service levels that the applications are already asking for, right? And that's where we get very, very data-driven. So now we design that set of service levels. It's typically between three and five. That's going to give a range of price and performance because at the end of the day, that's how we all shop for a service, right? Yep. You look at the range <laughs> of price. You look at the range of performance. You pick one. Yep. And that's Cut. what everybody wants. Your classic good, better, best. Good, better, best. Exactly. Small, medium, large. Slow, medium, fast. However you want to put it. So uh, a service level is, it's defining a level of IOPS, a level of latency, some of both, little some column A, little column yes. B. So uh, an ideal service level definition says, how many IOPS per terabyte of capacity should you expect as the minimum for this service? Because that's what an application needs, right? But... We also need to establish a ceiling on that. Why? It's counterintuitive at first when you think about it. The only way to get a floor or any kind of SLA is to provide a ceiling. Every successful infrastructure, from power to water to network or whatever, is not, is not infinite. It has limited capacity to serve. So you have to regulate the demand on that infrastructure so it doesn't fail. And Stetson has a point here he's going to make. The quip that I have for that, just going through my head right now, is every performance problem is really an under-delivery problem. Okay? It's under-delivery. Okay. And, and it's almost always caused by an over-delivery somewhere else, which is addressed ah, by QoS. Yeah, I see your point. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, so a failure to deliver on one application, when you really get, dive in there and start tearing apart the infrastructure, particularly with a shared shared infrastructure, which is what everybody builds these days, mm -hmm. what you find is another application that is just simply consuming more than it was intended to. So mm -hmm. more to your point, when yeah. you said a failure to deliver on a particular application is because of an over-success somewhere else. Right. Ah, yeah, totally, <laughs> right. totally. And over-cost, right? Yes. So the poor CFO is at the mercy of whatever applications ask for because the financial controllers in IT have no way to to determine who gets what. This is a scarce resource allocation problem we're solving. That's the big problem in storage. Uh, think of any public utility, right? If um, if there weren't fuses and circuit breakers on, on houses and buildings, what would happen? They would burn down. There would be totally. blackouts, yep. right? Every successful infrastructure has to have that demand regulator, and that's what we're doing. We're putting an artificial bottleneck in place called QoS so, that's, so that we can control it because all the other bottlenecks are not controllable.
So, so you've mentioned IOPS per terabyte a yes. couple of times. Can, can you expand on that? Can you explain what that is? Absolutely. It's that notion of IO density. What, what amount of IO is going to any given amount of capacity? So we choose IOPS per terabyte, or you can use IOPS per gigabyte. It's just math. And th that's how we define the minimum and the maximum for a service level. For example, I need 1,000 IOPS per terabyte as a minimum for this class of applications. But I don't want to give more than 2,000. Why? Well, I need a, a window, a, a, a range of performance that that application is going to run in. And I want to make sure that I don't over-deliver because of two reasons. One, cost. Two, performance. Because if I allow anything to over-deliver, then it's back to, I have no fuses and circuit breakers, and the copper's going to heat up and the house is going to burn down, right? So, um, so then we have ranges that are sufficient for delivering at a particular cost. Now we've solved the cost problem and the performance problem. And if we design a cluster so that it always has enough IOPS to serve all of the application performance that we project, then we don't have performance problems. We're, think about how we design for capacity, but then we ignore designing for performance, right? Yeah, or, or the inverse, right? Just focus purely on performance and end up with a capacity number that may or may not be, be in the range of what's realistic. That's right. You yeah. end up with stranded capacity, which is yep. you know, a waste of assets. So here we are. We're designing performance as if it were capacity, right? And we're putting those two th concepts together. Normally, people think of capacity in one hand, and performance is completely different. <laughs> Oh, we, we, we have somebody breaking down in the yeah, room. Yeah, don't mind Andrew on. dying Andrew over here. Andrew dying. To us. Um, just give him a moment here. We just want, we'll wait for the death rattle. So, Are you, are you all right, Andrew? I'll live. Would you like some water? Because I don't have any. <laughs> was, it, was it something I said? I'm, I'm really worried now. <laughs> no, it's, uh, I have a in my He looks oh, like he's going to make it. Okay, okay so good, good. back. Patient uh, will live. Yeah. I'm debating whether or not we should just leave that we in. We should totally just leave, that <laughs> just leave it in. Absolutely. Um, just to kind of focus down on this yeah. uh, a little finer, the thing that I that I find incredibly attractive and have since stolen. Um, so thank you. You know, <laughs> no, thank you uh, for because it's made everything that that we do uh, a lot easier. Is is to start thinking about uh, storage and architectural perspective from a holistic manner. And when you use IOPS per terabyte, when you when you when you use that that metric as your allocation unit. It, it forces you to think about storage design in a different way because you start to think about it from a holistic standpoint, not just do I have enough capacity or do I have enough performance, but do I have enough of both and do they run out together? Because yes. if you nail the architecture, you run out of performance and capacity at the same time. Bingo. So, so as a matter of fact, further to that point, once you have them tethered together with an adaptive QoS policy, you only need to worry about the space after that because they're tethered. I'm looking at the, 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 the sliders right there in that um, mixer. That one is um, IOPS, the other one is terabytes. Okay? You slide one, the other one goes together. Now, you just said something really interesting, adaptive QoS. Mm -hmm. can, can you explain that a little bit? Adaptive QoS is, is basically a mechanism that, that, that keeps the, that adjusts the, the I.O. in proportion to the amount of space that is currently being consumed. So, for example, if we have 1,000 IOPS per terabyte, um, there is a QoS policy that will allow up to 1,000 IOPS for one terabyte. When that volume goes grows to two terabytes, they will have 2,000 IOPS. Interestingly enough, Evan has created this to where 
the volume is actually delivering twice what we've promised. So now with a service level, what we're doing is it's now also a communication mechanism. So you communicate to your end user, to your service um, consumer, that they're getting 1,000 IOPS per terabyte, but in fact, you're allowing them to go up to 2,000 IOPS per terabyte. So what that does is when you get that call as a storage admin that someone has run out of performance, you're on the right side of that conversation because it's already about them getting 2,000 IOPS per terabyte when you've only promised 1,000. Let me, let me take a step back just to, to explain um, a little more, I guess, technical detail, right? Because at the end of the day, when you provision a volume, a volume has a 1,000 terabyte volume. It's empty. You not really have any consumed space. But let's say you consume a terabyte, as he said, you have a 1,000 IOPS per terabyte QoS policy. In cluster data on top, the policies are either on a volume, on an SVM, on a file, we are really dealing with policies at the volume level. And those, vo and the, and those policies, are, you know, the, the that uh, handles them, they're dynamic. So I can change them on the fly. And this is what this uh, tool does. On the fly, it measures the consumed capacity of a particular volume and adjusts a particular policy to match an IOS per terabyte, you know, mathematical equation. So again, if you consume two terabytes, then it becomes 2,000 IOS per terabyte, effectively. Within that density. So the density is the same. The amount of IOPS is what gets adjusted in proportion to the space within the same density. So as, as the consumer increases their capacity used, the QoS limit is increased proportionately to allow them the appropriate amount of IOPS. Thereby, we now have the, the, the tethering of the IOPS and the space, both finite resources on the system. And this is how you can plan for your performance model, because you know how much capacity you're going to have, you know your range of service levels and IOPS per terabyte, and now you can plan the amount of IOPS that that system's actually going to consume and build a configuration that's going to reliably do that. So, so can you give us some examples of what these service levels look like? You know, I, I saw an email the other day saying that we have something like 970 different configurations just for our entry-level systems, right? So there's a lot of variance inside of, well, how you can configure your system. So is there some generic rules? Is there some yes. examples that you can give us? Yeah, so the, the problem we were solving with Adaptive QS is twofold. One, we need simplicity. It's got to be really simple, yeah, right? That's Very the easy big to one. understand. Number two, we've got to manage at scale, right? If you've got 10 clusters with 1,000 volumes each, that's 10,000 volumes to manage. You're not going to manage 10,000 individual QoS policies. It's not scalable. Um, the largest provider that's doing this model has 44 petabytes, and I, I don't even know how many tens of thousands of volumes. So... What this does is, is it creates simplicity in both what the, what the consumer can choose from and simplicity in operations. There, once you set up three or four policies, you leave alone and forget it, right? You don't even know it's running. It, it doesn't even matter anymore to you, right, unless you need to change the policy in the future. And so you asked, Andrew, what are the range of typical service levels? Very typically, it's, it's a, a value service level. We call it value because it's meant to be low cost. Mm -hmm. And it might start out at 128 IOPS a terabyte, which is fairly slow, although fairly fast when you think about it, it's just SATA. And the only reason it's going to be able to run that fast is because it's flash accelerated. And we'll let them go up to maybe 512 IOPS a terabyte. Then very typically, there's something on the high end. This is where we're constantly selling AFF. In every account we go to, we're making AFF sales. Why? We're pointing out 
uh, that they have this little subset of workloads. It's got to go faster. It needs very low latency. It's got to go fast. And so we're almost always selling AFF. And that is typically a service level that's going to go somewhere between maybe a floor of, say, 6,000 or 8,000 IAPS a terabyte up to maybe 12 or 16,000 IAPS a terabyte once in a while faster than that, but usually that's about the right range for that high-speed class of applications because the real critical issue is actually the low latency. Every service level definition has not only an IMPS or terabyte range, it has a latency range as well, right? SATA might be as high as 17 to 20 milliseconds. Um, SAS typically as high as maybe 8 milliseconds. And then all flash FADs maybe with, you know, two or less. And, um, and that really satisfies everybody very, very well. So then we, there's always a middle service level or two. Um, a middle service level might typically be at least, say, 2,000 IOPS a terabyte going up to maybe 4,000. And one thing to keep in mind, so uh, as we're talking through these service levels and, uh, and we're building clusters from a physical perspective, it's clustered then on top, right? So we have a, a cluster of old flash fast, a cluster of fast 8080s with SATA, fast 8080s with SAS, maybe different um, uh, flash cache uh, uh, amount per, per controller, but they're all part of the same cluster. So now, if I have a volume on a, let's say, a, you know, I'm going to call it a performance service level, you can certainly both move it to a value service level by just moving it from one aggregate to the next. And and the and the and the um, the active QoS tool is smart enough to adjust the policy based on the aggregate that it's sitting on. So so it's not only defining a service level for a for a particular controller and an aggregate, but it's also defining a multitude of service levels within a particular cluster for, uh, through which you can move your data around. So, so now a performance problem is addressed by a mere vol move. Yeah, that's, that's what it's reduced to. The troubleshooting domain has now been reduced from troubleshooting an entire, you know, HA pair or entire cluster. Now you're troubleshooting one volume whereby the action is vol move start. Yeah, that's the thing. You know, it's it's the fact that it makes the infrastructure simpler to manage, which initially you look at it and, and you go, well, wait a minute, we're going to have sliding QoS policies all over the place. Like, you're telling me that this thing's going to be fully automated. It's going to make decisions. Like, I want my storage guy making those decisions. I don't want your, your silly script doing that. You know, that there, there, there can be a lot of confrontation in that conversation. But this is the lesson that the service providers have learned that the enterprises have not yet quite realized. And what I love about this solution is your team and this team is, is bringing that knowledge, is bringing that life experience of how to build a real service, how to build a monetizable service where that's profitable, right? Service providers know how to do that. They buy kit from the same place the enterprise does. You know, they're not all whitewashing and, and, and just going nuts with Ceph as much as everyone likes to say they are. That's not actually occurring. Um, but, but on the back end, they're using the same infrastructure that, that enterprise customers are using. They're just building it differently, and they're consuming it differently. And, and, and this service is bringing that methodology, that way of working, that way of doing IT to those customers and giving them a leg up, right? Don't, don't go learn these lessons yourself. Here, this is how an SP does it. Develop three to five service offerings. That's your catalog. Hard stop. There are no exceptions. You fit in one of those or you go somewhere else. This is all we offer. Uh, and you've got enough variation within that so that, that, that it can align to any need that, that requires. And at the end of the day, the ops team doesn't think about it. You know, the, when you guys leave, when, when the service, your two-day workshop's out, you know, the, actually, I, I guess I'll just flip this to Eduardo and Stetson and ask you guys, right? You, you've gone through the workshop. 
how long ago, two-part question, how long ago was that, and what have you had to do since then? Eduardo? Well, so as I said, when I came in, I was about May. I think the work should happen the, the December or November before. Uh, and it was really, there was a lull there because I think we were busy with things at the end of the fiscal year. But it really was, uh, you know, from I pick it up in May until... I don't know, sometime in June when we started deploying filers according to the to the spec that was laid out, we made some adjustments. I mean, uh, you know, there, there was a, a first pass. I talked to Evan, hey, I think we need to adjust this this configuration, that configuration. But it probably was somewhere in the, I, I want to say it was probably late June, mid-June when we started deploying filers uh, according to the spec. Now, the other side of this is that the, um, and, and something that we, frankly, we're working with is that we also need to communicate this to, to the application teams and work hand-in-hand -hand with them, right? Because we're trying to provide a service and it has a it has a cost, and and one thing that the service providers do very well is that they they charge you, right? So they they're able to to assign a price and assign a service level and say, listen, this is how much you pay, this is how much you get. Internally, that gets a little trickier because I have to do that back charge and that kind of stuff, and and that's something of a of a of a procedural uh, operational uh, issue that we need to go through. But no, it you know it certainly it serves as a roadmap to build the right service to deploy it. And to deploy it within the specs that you know we agreed that makes sense. And then at, at this point, I think we have at least four clusters that are running with this with this methodology to some degree. So, so you guys have been doing this for about six months now, mm -hmm. and leveraging this new model. And Stetson, I think the last time you were on the podcast, you used the term "orphaned capacity, orphaned performance." Right? Is is that something with this model that you have eliminated? And uh, I guess a corollary to that is, you know, are, are you seeing cost savings as a result? So we're being, I'll be honest, we're being a lot more careful about what we deploy on the floor and how big we build these this clusters. And we'll, we're cutting down the, the physical size of the clusters uh, to fit the model because it just makes more sense, which also brings together less waste. If you look at, I mean, I, I don't, <laughs> don't want to uh, uh, talk about how much waste we have, but we have a lot of storage on the floor. And, and through organic growth, some of them has been orphaned. Some of them has been, you know, deemed for the commission. This one app holding to that one filer that needs to be the commission. So we have a lot of that happening. In the new model, I, I don't see that happening yet. And I think we have a much better control because we actually have a, a, a notion of how much performance it already gets. There's no... There was a lot of discussion in the past, especially in CMO, like, oh, I want a dedicated HA pair. I want a dedicated fire for this and the other. We're done with that. We're doing everybody's shared... You get a particular I/O per terabyte, and uh, and if it doesn't work out, then we'll both move from you and we'll work with you within that, with that, within that. And I think that attitude will probably result in much more efficient utilization of our storage infrastructure. I, I think what Eduardo just touched on, though, is, is is how big the systems were before, and 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 remember, I told you that I had come up with a, a, an architecture that I was very proud of. And, and I was proud of it because it was able to deliver all of that performance because we didn't have an enforcement mechanism. As an insurance policy, I deliberately built those systems really large. So now with what we know, now that we have an enforcement system in place to control the performance, now that we have more knowledge, and you said you know it's fact-based, we know exactly what we're doing, we know how to measure it, now Eduardo is able to build those systems much smaller, and actually improve on the performance that right. I had. We, we have a predictable uh, model. And, it, and yeah, and it, it's not unique to NetApp IT. I mean, I've worked in all enterprise environments that we build. Well, you know, you need, you need 10 terabytes, but we need to buy 50 because yeah. of spindle counts and things like that. And, we don't, and, we, and the only QoS policy 
in seven mode is a controller, right? It's yeah. like a, you, you, you or, or the disc. Now we have this tool, and, and Cluster on allows us to control much, uh, much more granular, and we can deliver based on an expectation. So it, it helps us build much more tight and, you know, uh, I don't know, like a expect, uh, systems with expected results from a performance mm-hmm. perspective. The tethered. As we've traveled around about 60 customers, the number one performance issue we see is that people are attaching way too many shells to too few controllers. We did. And yeah. Everybody does it because they think that's the way to maximize asset utilization. But then you end up with the waste problem, right, yeah. and stranded storage. What we're doing now is we're putting a fairly tight box. Don't add more than this number of these types of shells to these controllers, and you won't get a performance hell, right? And avoiding that performance hell is a huge cost savings. Think about, I mean, in most organizations, they're spending up to half their time defending performance problems, doing the analysis, the bottleneck analysis. It's a huge time sucker, right? What if you didn't have to do that anymore? Think about how much happier and more productive people could be and how much more happy the consumers would be. The thing we haven't really touched on much is the business model. Right. So in a service provider, you got to make money. Yeah. Right. You, you got to grow revenue. You got to have happy customers and you got to be price competitive. And those th- three things seem really uh, at odds. Right. That maybe we can only do one. No, we can do all three. And here's the amazing thing. Cluster data on tap can and does deliver a stored service well below the cost of the big public cloud players. Right. And we're showing customers how to do that every day. You should see the look on the business guys' faces when they see 60 to 80 points of margin at a price competitive to anybody else's public cloud. It's like rebirth for them. They're so <laughs> happy, right? And that's the, that's the emotional payoff for us to do these kinds of workshops is, is the hope that people find that, yes, I can go compete with the cloud. I can be a player. And in the enterprise, it's the very same feeling. Although they're not profit-motivated, they have to manage cost, and they have to show that they're competitive, and they have to have a great cloud strategy. So we're doing the very same thing in the enterprise. It's just a lower margin. And now they can offer a storage service that's a fraction of the cost of public cloud, and no longer do they have these fights about, well, yes, we are efficient. Now they can actually quantify how efficient they are, and, and they can give their CIO a really great business conversation and change this whole conversation with the business from, are we fast enough? No, you're not, to we can demonstrate that we're fast enough for what you've asked for, right? And we can demonstrate that we can manage cost on an individual volume basis. It revolutionizes the spirit of storage, which is usually very downcast and beat upon, to now we can win. We can do this. And that's just really what uh, what drives us yeah that's you know that you touched on it, eduardo kind of talking about the fact that you know internally you know we we have to to justify every controller we put on the floor and and at the end of the day that controller sits there and and through accounting and maths is is tied to an engineering organization or a sales force or, or a service that that is being funded by an and business unit but but it's not a one for one equation the way that that you get in in a pure hosting world where you uh, are are consuming a service through a hyperscaler or or a regional local s- service provider uh, or hoster this is the thing that IT shops all over the world are coming to grips with you know they they need to maintain that that pets level of service that they've always had because it's it's what the business has come to to rely upon but at the same time 
they have to justify their existence and, and make smart decisions about how they invest and how they expose and, and how they do that. So the big reason I, w- I was so happy we were able to get you guys on here uh, th- this week is, is just to let people know, like, hey, if you're having trouble with this, guess what? You can give us a call. Absolutely. Right? We, we do this for a living. Yes. Seven days a week. We got a team. We'll put them on a plane. They'll come help you out. This doesn't have to be a challenge. You know, this can, this can be a celebration, not, not a, uh, uh, as you said, a, 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 you know, getting beaten down in the corner of we just can't win, you know, constantly defending your existence. No, the storage is fast enough. I can prove it. Look at this dashboard. But, but fundamentally just changing how that, that conversation flows, right? Okay, fine. You want it on, on faster performance? We can offer that tier. Not a problem. We don't care. But just know this is how much more that's going to cost you. Is that worth that much more? Like, are you going to get that much more profits? Are you going to get that much more revenue if we speed this application up? Or do you just want it to be a little bit faster? Uh, and, and if you're willing to take, as you said, that point on your margin, right, lower, m- more operating expense, lower, lo- lower total revenues, then IT can absolutely do that, right? Yes. It becomes a money conversation at the end of the day instead of fighting over, you know, speeds and feeds. I, I think the key thing here is cost enforcement. You know, we, we talk about all of these different IOPS enforcement, latency enforcement, and the one thing that we overlook all the time is cost. And that's really what, 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 what's, what drives the world. I mean, I don't see them trading IOPS and latency metrics on Wall Street. They, tra- they trade dollars. They trade currencies. And, and that's what this thing does is it brings us to a dollar or, or euro or whatever your currency is in your country. It brings us to that kind of conversation. So what I'm hearing is that NetApp IT in NetApp Customer 1 and Customer 0 are all offering something that is invaluable to our customers, and that's experience. You, know, you guys are living it. You guys are experiencing it. You're making the mistakes. You're having the successes, and then you're relaying that back to our customers and allowing them to enjoy the fruits of your labors, which in turn allows them to have a more positive experience with NetApp. Is that, is that good summarization of Absolutely. what's going on there? Yeah, that's the yeah. big goal. Yeah, so so Evan, I think this has been a lot of really, really great, really interesting information. So for customers, for account teams who listen to the podcast, right, for all of our listeners, how can they get a hold of you? How can they begin this evaluation process to adopt, you know, your your storage service model? Sure. Well, obviously, you can always reach out to me, but we just now started to put a process in place. So you can go to an opportunity ID in salesforce.com, right-click on it, and request service design. So we're trying to make it very easy to engage with us. Yeah, so, so for customers, just go through the account team, and they'll, they'll be able to track you down. That's right. And uh, get you in a plane, and you're probably like diamond... Platinum. Yeah. Are you guys all? Are you guys all on Twitter? I know. I know Stetson is. Anyone else on Twitter or any social media that you want to? Evan C. Miller. Evan C. Miller on Twitter. Stetson is Stetson Webster, right? Stetson Webster. Oh yes, and I have a new Twitter account. It's uh, Mr. Ed Rivera. Okay, cool. So if you guys want to follow these guys on Twitter, we'll also have links to their Twitter bio or Twitter accounts, not bios, on the blog when we submit this podcast. All right, that music tells me it's time to go. If you'd like to get in touch with us, send us an email to podcast.netapp.com or send us a tweet at NetApp. As always, if you'd like to subscribe, find us on iTunes or on SoundCloud or via techontappodcast.com. If you like the show today, please leave us a review. On behalf of the entire Tech on Tap podcast team, I'd like to thank Evan Miller, Stetson Webster, and Eduardo Rivera for joining us this week. And as always, thanks for listening. Good? Yeah. You learning some good things about service providers and storage? Oh, yeah. Yeah, you yeah. see my notebook over here, man. I, it's, it's pretty super impressive. Full. Yeah. Um, I have a feeling that we're going to have to bust out the guest beard this time. Uh, 
is it, is it time? It's, it's guest beer time. Is it guest beer time? It is. All right. All right. Let's do this. All right. We're going to do this. So check out the, uh, the, the Twitter accounts to see the guest beard in action. 